Hello listeners, this is your host Brian Crego and welcome to the second episode of the Breach Boys podcast. Today we will be discussing the latest in cybersecurity news and our takes on how a stronger security posture can protect your business. Today we have Mark Gonzalez of Site2 and Michael Morano, author of The Human Firewall Builder, available now on Amazon. Today we will be discussing the Nordstrom data breach of employee PII and the healthcare.gov breach affecting over 90,000 individuals. We are sponsored by Michael Morano's new book, The Human Firewall Builder, available now on Amazon. We are also sponsored by Site2. You can learn about Site2's red team and blue team services for cybersecurity at www.site2.com. That's site2.com. Let's begin. Welcome listeners to the Breach Boys episode two. We'll start with the latest breach news. So Nordstrom's was the, le- the latest data breach victim, worker names, social security numbers, dates of birth, checking account and routing numbers, salaries and additional information was included in the breach. In a statement, Norm- Nordstrom said its security team discovered the incident on October 9th, which was the result of a contract worker who improperly handled the employee information. Nordstrom did not disclose how many of its employees were impacted by the breach, but according to its latest financial report, the department store has approximately 72,500 full and part-time employees in 2017. So, uh, Mark, Mike, what are your thoughts on this breach? Yeah, hey, everybody. It's Mike Moreno, author of The Human Firewall Builder. Happy to be here again with the Breach Boys. So this this Nordstrom breach this is a this is a new kind of breach because it's a it's a retailer right and we we hear a lot about these retailers getting breached that happens all the time but in this case it's something different it's not the customers it's not the clients it's not the folks shopping at the retailer it's actually the employees and this is a great example of how organizations need to protect their employee information just as much as they need to protect their client information. And in this case, Nordstrom has seasonal employees. They obviously have third-party contractors like the person that was involved in the breach here itself. And this is a great example also of why we need to make sure that we're doing vendor diligence and we know who has access to our information. And we're also doing ongoing testing. So this is a, a great example and a new kind of breach. Mark, what do you have to say about this breach? Yeah, Mike, so uh, on the first edition of the Breach Boys, we talked a little bit about vendor management and having policies and procedures defined around um, hiring a new vendor, making sure that they are following the same strict rules and regulations that you follow. Uh, But in addition to that, we would want to have regular risk assessments performed by the company itself and maybe by a third party that they would hire. Doing things like vulnerability assessments, penetration tests, identifying where the risks are in their existing network and firewall. That might be helpful even to involve another third party organization in doing a red team exercise so that they can help them to identify some kind of vulnerabilities in their network that they need to defend against. So internal security audits are one of the things that organizations are starting to do more and more of, confirming that the authorization levels and authentication controls that are supposed to be in place are actually being leveraged. 
employees on a regular basis are moving around within organizations and are taking on new job responsibilities. And so making sure that those uh, responsibilities are, maintain the policy of least privilege or only need to know. Obviously, if somebody moves from the HR department into the financial department, they no longer need access to the HR records and vice versa. And that's critically important also with vendors when they're coming in and they're performing a specific job function for a limited period of time, making sure that their privileges are removed promptly whenever they complete the job. Anything else, Mike, that you want to say about that? One thing I think we should point out here, too, is that the information security team at Nordstrom, and, and one, here's a, here's a good win, they had an information security team, which we're learning now more organizations do have, so that's a win for Nordstrom. But the real win here is that they promptly discovered there was a breach and they immediately alerted law enforcement and began their, their investigation. So what does this also indicate? It also indicates that they had an incident response plan. And listeners might recall too, when we talked about administrative controls back in the Breach Boys episode number one, a lot of companies still do not have incident response plans. And having a plan in place greatly reduces the impact of a breach like this Nordstrom breach. It helps you outline a plan when to contact investigators, when to begin your forensic investigation, and when to contact your other third parties that you need during a breach, like your lawyers, your PR folks, and all of the other people you're going to need to clean up the mess. Yeah, and a key, key point about that is not just having that check, checklist of people that need to be contacted and, and steps that need to be taken, but also who has the ball in, in performing some of those tasks. <clears throat> Obviously, you want to have somebody in your PR department or marketing department that has that is accustomed with speaking with the press or speaking with news agencies, um, having that conversation in incidents like this, or your CEO or someone in a senior level position. You don't want to just throw someone in your organization to the fire who isn't accustomed to having those uh, levels of conversation. So it's important in documenting who, who's in the right role, who has the responsibility of performing those tasks as well. Another item I think we should note is Nordstrom now is providing, or at least offering, identity monitoring to the 90,000-ish people involved in the breach for the next 24 months. And what we're learning now is all of the different states start to launch their own privacy laws and privacy requirements, we're learning that many of them also require organizations now to offer at least 24 months worth of identity monitoring. And when you think of the rising expense of a data breach, just doing some quick math here, I know from personal experience, identity monitoring from any of the major companies, uh, Nordstrom in this case is using ID alert, ID monitoring. I forget what the exact name was of the company, but on average, all clear ID. I had to quickly look at that one. But I know from personal experience, when you're using LifeLock and other types of services, you're looking at anywhere from twenty to thirty dollars a month. Multiply that by ninety thousand, and let's just assume they're getting a you know nice reduction for the the bulk or the, the large quantity they have to be purchasing, but you're still talking about 
several, if not tens of millions of dollars in cost of just ID monitoring, identity monitoring alone from those involved in a breach. So the cost of these data breaches is becoming astronomical to the point where if a company it does have a breach, they could potentially end up going out of business. That's how expensive they're getting. Mark, the cost of a breach, what do you think about cyber insurance, cybersecurity insurance policies to help alleviate some of those expenses? Well, I think they're a must, and they're quite affordable these days when you think, take into consideration, as you're mentioning, the extreme costs that an organization might have to bear if they are um, affected by some kind of data breach. If you're looking at um, your average cost that you were just mentioning there, multiplied by all those different records, um, you know, you start getting into hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially even millions of dollars in penalties, fees, and expenses associated with um, not just a credit watch, but remediating the event. You know, you can't move forward as an organization if you suspect that there's still um, some kind of virus or malware on your network. Um, or there might be some flaw in your policies and procedures that might make it easy for the next employee to either do harm or make a mistake. And so the remediation, the cleanup process, the ensuring that you're back up and running 100% after the breach event occurred, all the expenses that are associated with that can, can be insurmountable for especially a small and mid-sized organization, um, but even the large-sized organizations. So when you're looking at a cyber liability insurance policy that might have a premium of a thousand or a couple thousand dollars to protect several hundred thousand records, I think it's a no-brainer. It's, uh, it's something that is critical. It's also, of course, very important to make sure that that cyber liability insurance policy along with your errors and omissions policy are really gonna cover all these points because they're not all, just like any other insurance policy, they're, they're not all created the same. They may not cover all the costs that are associated. Uh, with the incident. The basics that they cover are the credit watching and monitoring after an event like that, as you mentioned, for 24 months or a year or three years. But all the other ancillary costs is what you have to make sure that your policy is going to address, making sure that you're going to be able to uh, remediate the issue and get back up to 100%. But that kind of leads us to the next topic, I believe. Right, Brian? Yeah, we have more data breach news here. And uh even larger on scale. So a, health, a healthcare.gov breach exposed the data of 90,000 individuals. Uh, last I read, that was the number. It's been increasing uh, little by little each day. So CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, admitted to a breach of healthcare.gov's direct enrollment pathway, which enables agents and brokers to complete consumer applications for coverage by the federal healthcare exchanges. So in this breach, names, birth dates, addresses, partial social security, as well as the various, various other personal employment and immigration information. Officials didn't specify how the agent and broker accounts were breached, nor if the officials had identified any potential suspects. CMS said it's offering free identity theft protection services for those impacted by the breach. According to an article I found on healthitsecurity.com, Healthcare.gov has had a history of this when it comes to poor data security. 2016, the Government Accountability Office, GAO, reported that the website had 316 security incidents between October 2013 and March 2015. 
CMS identified weaknesses in the website's technical controls protecting PII, so including insufficiently restricting administrator privileges for data hub systems, inconsistent application of security patches, and the insecure configuration of an administrative network. Uh, one other thing I want to mention, I came across that CMS identified other security weaknesses and controls related to boundary protection, identification, authentication, authorization, encryption, audit and monitoring, and software updates that limited the effectiveness of the security controls on the data hub. So less than, less, less than exposed to uh, the risk of unauthorized disclosure, modification, and exfiltration. So if you guys want to jump in on that, I'll pass it along to, uh, to Mark first. Mark, what are your thoughts on, on this healthcare.gov breach? Yes, so for our listeners who aren't aware, healthcare information is the most coveted information uh, by hackers around the world. Um, the reason for that is because healthcare information is unique. Obviously, if there's a breach of credit card information, the credit card company can simply issue you a new credit card. But when you're talking about your social security number or your um, health conditions, those are things that rarely change and are, are going to obviously can be used uh, for a variety of things from identity theft or to steal financial information from you. So they're the most coveted and therefore the, the regulations around healthcare information, protecting healthcare information, uh, have become the strictest. But these high profile incidents like this make people afraid um, and untrusting in their healthcare providers, and it really requires them to do to take extreme measures to now try and uh, remedy it. But this this keeps going down the path of what we were talking about earlier of the extreme cost of to an organization that experiences uh, an event like this and having to clean up afterwards. You know, we're talking about now uh, many more records than what we were talking about in the Nordstrom incident, from hundreds, of, from tens of thousands to now we're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of records, and so the cost is going to be astronomical. Um, Mike, I believe you were recently reading a report that was issued um, by IBM or sponsored by IBM that broke down some of the costs in more detail. Do you want to share with our listeners some of those, some of that information? Yeah, absolutely. And what's happening is these healthcare organizations like healthcare.gov, they're getting breached not once or twice, they're getting breached multiple times now. It's becoming a reoccurrence year over year where they're getting breached. And what we're learning too is that the time from the breach to the time of response and to the time of the remedy of the breach is not improving. So what we've learned is that it takes well over 100 days just to even recognize there has been a breach and then to mitigate or reduce the impact of that breach takes another potentially 100 plus days so we have organizations that are potentially vulnerable for nearly six months with a breach occurring and the cost of the breaches is not going down at all what we've discovered is year over year thanks to the ponemon institute it's going up and it's going up significantly for healthcare organizations because the cost of the breach not only involves the remediation, not only involves legal fees, PR, and ongoing credit monitoring, but there is also fines from regulators. 
as we also learned recently with the fine from Anthem Health, the record-breaking $16 million uh, dating back from the breach of 2015, that one is, is what we consider a mega breach. And something tells me that that won't be the last of the mega breaches and that won't be the largest fine. I'm sure those are going to continue to go up as well as more of these breaches occur. So healthcare.gov breach was actually discovered because of excessive searching for consumers. And this, this excessive searching was not being done by a hacker or, or an outsider or an unknown. It was actually being performed by agents and brokers who had accounts to access the information. So this, this leads us down this mystery of, was this malicious? Did somebody maybe compromise the accounts of the agents and brokers and was impersonating them? Or were agents and brokers actually using or misusing elevated privileges that they discovered they had to maybe get access to information that they normally wouldn't be entitled to? And this circles back to something that we talk about over and over again in cybersecurity and information security uh, controls and protocols, which is actually something that we call access control or user control monitoring and testing on a regular basis. Had somebody been testing and monitoring to make sure that users had least privileged access, only access to the information that they needed to do their jobs, like these brokers and agents, then this may never have happened in the first place. And in the event that it was a malicious actor or malicious actors who gained access to those accounts, was there multi-factor authentication in place, a very common control, a very common technical control to reduce the risk of account compromise? Because if it had been in place, if it, it is in place, that would have reduced the impact. Mark, what are some other things that could be done to reduce the impact of a breach? What are some of the ideas that you have? Yeah, so it goes back to your mentioning administrative controls or industry best practices around security and, and authorization and authentication. One of the daunting tasks that's out there that leads to, that, that reflects how, how these breaches are occurring is that 63% of network intrusions and data breaches are due to compromised user credentials. So that means someone finding um, a list of username and passwords, either by breaking in or being already a member of an organization. You're an employee for an organization for a long time, and maybe someone gets disgruntled and gets access to that information, and they use that to compromise your organization. Or when you have a, a breach from uh, an organization that perhaps you leverage or you partner with to do some of your work, and those credentials on that third-party website or third-party network are the same ones that you use for your own organization. So auditing that, you know, 65% of companies, believe it or not, still are not requiring their employees to change their passwords. So once you identify a username and password combination, a hacker can count on, in many cases, that still being the keys to the kingdom, still being able to, uh, to leverage that combination, that those authentication controls to gain access to a company network. So one of the ways is, of course, for an organization to enforce that employees have to change their password on a regular basis 
or that employees have to use different credentials when they're going to different websites or different networks that they're accessing for work. They shouldn't use the same credentials for every login that they have. It can be burdensome, but it is something that is required to try and help mitigate these types of situations. The other fact is that 91% of all successful cyber attacks begin with email. Um, and that is because 92% of, of malware is delivered via email. So organizations making sure that their email is protected by having anti-spam, antivirus filtering on their email before it even reaches the employee's mailbox. Having training to help ensure that those employees, once they receive an email, are able to identify an email that is potentially a phishing attack or contains some kind of malware in a link or an attachment. We know that the Microsoft Office documents or any kind of executable, any kind of PDF document that's contained in an email is a method for deploying some kind of malware on a network. So making sure that an employee's and organizations' employees are aware of those types of techniques um, is critical. Your weakest, the weakest link to an organization can be a single employee that is not well trained on these types of tactics that are used by hackers, um, and then they ultimately end up causing uh, mass disruption to the entire organization. In some cases, the same employee can be a repeat offender. Organizations need to have plans in place they need to have well-trained employees. They need to have incident response teams prepared. And they need to test. They need to perform exercises on a regular basis. All of those things will help reduce the impact of a data breach and reduce the cost of the breach as well. Mike, one of the things that uh, we were talking about yesterday when we were preparing for today's event is one of the is is a lot of our listeners might not be part uh, members of very large organizations like we've been talking about so far. And so they might have the attitude, well, you know, I'm a small company. What would a hacker want to do with me? What do I really have that would attract attack an attacker to my organization? And, and the reality is that you only need to have 500 medical records. So maybe a small doctor's practice, an optometrist, a dentist, if you have 500 patient records or more, you have to follow the same regulations, the same HIPAA, um, the Department of Health and Human Services regulations that the, the big organizations have to follow, uh, whether it be contacting the authorities, contacting the press, um, contacting obviously all of your patients and everyone that is involved in the breach. Um, they might think that it's something only reserved for the larger size organizations, but the reality is is that in the law, it identifies that anyone with 500 patient records or more have to follow these rules and are uh, vulnerable or, or can be penalized by the, um, by the penalties of the law associated with them. So it's not something that is just for the, the large organizations. It's, it's virtually anyone who has uh, patient records on file. Excellent point. And when you do the quick math, right, when you take the Ponymon recent breach report, the study where they, where they come up with some really, uh, really good average numbers to determine the cost of a breach, around $400 is the average cost for a data breach for a healthcare provider. A small doctor, let's say if they have a thousand, 500 to a thousand 
compliant records, you're looking at the cost of a data breach being several hundreds of thousands of dollars. So even for a small local doctor, dentist practice, you're looking at almost several hundreds of thousands of dollars, which could be something that actually puts one of these organizations, one of these small practices out of business. So even for these smaller group or single family doctor practices, they still need to focus on cybersecurity. It's still a must do in today's threat filled world. So that brings us to the stupid human segment of this podcast. So our stupid human of the podcast is Kanye West. Despite Kanye using an iPhone X or SS with full support face ID, he unlocked his phone manually. Uh, he entered his iPhone pin, which was 00000060 in front of news cameras streaming live during a meeting with Donald Trump in the Oval Office. Kanye also proposed replacing Air Force One with a hydrogen-powered iPlane One from Apple. So, <laughs> not a smart idea. Now everybody knows his pin code. Hopefully he's changed it since then and uh, starts using the facial recognition feature to, to authenticate to his, his iPhone. So, Mark and Mike, what are your thoughts on Kanye West and our stupid human of the podcast? I think, unfortunately, he's just an example of what a lot of people do is set passwords out of convenience. I think that one of the recent studies showed that um, the most common bad password that's out there is either the all zeros, as you mentioned, for Kanye, or something as simple as one, two, three, four, five, six, which obviously, since it's well known, every hacker is going to try that out of the gate. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, we're not all in front of the TV cameras every day, so we don't really have to worry about somebody capturing our, our password. Well, there's a lot of people that sit on the bus every morning to go to work or sit on the train, and somebody could shoulder, shoulder surf you and look at you entering your password. And once they have you, that password known, they can just grab and, and, and dart with your phone. Um, you know, I think that uh, stealing phones is not something that people realize is done on a regular basis, um, thinking because how are they going to get on my phone with my password? But if somebody shoulder, shoulder surfs you and sees your password, then it's just a matter of grabbing it. So I think that that is certainly uh, just a good public example of to, to bring to people's attention the fact that you have to be more conscientious about not only entering your password, but hopefully making it a good one so that... Um, someone doesn't see you. Obviously, face recognition is a good one. There's also fingerprint recognition that's out there. There's a variety of different ways to protect your smartphone now. And, and why is this important? Because smartphones now have access to all kinds of data. People are storing not just pictures on there, but they access their bank accounts. They access all kinds of information, both personal as well as for business. What do you think of our stupid human of the month there, Mike? Well, it's good. It's good to know that Kanye and I do not share the same password. We have completely <laughs> different passwords for our phone. And listen, this this points out some some really really good facts here. That there's people everywhere who are shoulder surfing, who are looking over our shoulder, whether they're curious, or whether they're malicious, or they just happen to be in a convenient spot and see you entering your password. And these days, thanks to everybody's smartphone having a camera, 
thanks to closed circuit security cameras everywhere we go, you are being recorded or you are in plain sight of somebody who can see what you're doing on your phone. Uh, a recent search I did on a very well-known online retailer, they sell privacy screens for your phone. You could get a two-pack for under $10. There is no reason why anybody out there listening should not have a privacy screen on their phone, on their laptop, any mobile device you're using in a public place. This will help give those shoulder surfers a little bit of eye strain because they will not be able to see what you're doing on your screen. It'll protect your information. And another really valuable fact that Mark just mentioned is your phone is no longer just your phone. It's no longer just your little handheld smartphone because now you're putting your payment apps and your banking apps on there. It becomes your most highly prized possession when it has access to your financial institutions on it. And a lot of times those accounts can be accessed immediately just by accessing the phone itself. So keep that in mind when securing these devices. It's no longer just a phone with your email and your contacts. It's also your financial information, your healthcare information, and anything else you might have on there. So it's a very prized asset to the bad guys. Yep, it's your personal kiosk to all that sensitive information. There we have it. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark and Mike for their color on the latest cybersecurity news. Again, we are sponsored by Michael Morano's new book, The Human Firewall Builder, available now on Amazon, and Site2. You can learn about Site2's red team and blue team services for cybersecurity at www.site2.com. That's site2.com. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to hear the latest Breach Boys episodes. Be safe out there.